The objective of many funds is to invest in assets whose value will grow with the aim of outperforming a benchmark such as an equity index. But some funds' key focus is on preserving wealth and delivering positive rather than negative returns, regardless of what markets are doing. These wealth preservation funds include Ruffer Investment Company, which is managed by today's guest, Duncan McInnes, an investment director at Ruffer. Duncan, how do you try and mitigate downside? Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. Um, what, what we do at Ruffer is we try to build an all-weather portfolio. So what that means is we want a portfolio that will deliver consistent positive returns regardless of whether the market or the economy are doing well or badly. And we've been doing that that one thing, that one strategy for 24 years since the firm was founded by Jonathan Ruffer. Um, how, has it, how has it gone? Well, over the 24 years, we've annualised at about 9% after fees for clients. That compares to about 7 for the FTSE with dividends reinvested. So that's quite good, but much more important than the return uh, to get to uh, the point of your question is that we've done it with considerably less volatility. So if you look at the FTSE over that 25-year period, there have been two times, first in 2000 and second in the financial crisis, where investors have lost half their money, 50% drawdowns in effect. The rougher uh, client or shareholder experience has been a a max loss of closer to 10. And so that's, that's really um, the crux of what we're, what we're doing, trying to minimise the, the losses and the drawdowns. And the, if you do that by owning a portfolio of risk assets, the upside looks after itself. Now, with Ruffer Investment Company, do you ever use hedge fund-type techniques to limit downside? For example, shorting, betting on the price of security falling or derivatives, because obviously a number of these funds do use those. Yeah, this is part of the the issue with the absolute return sector is that there are lots of different funds with lots of different approaches and some are derivative heavy and others are more vanilla. I think we sit far closer to the vanilla end of that. So today, 91% of the portfolio is in conventional asset classes. So that's stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies. But we do have 9% of the portfolio in, in derivative-like investments. Now, we, we don't do any shorting, but those derivatives are very important today. Uh, and I think that speaks to a much broader issue. Uh, if you go back a decade uh, to, to before the financial crisis, if an investor wanted a safe haven, if they wanted a protective asset, they could sit in cash and earn 5% in the bank. They could own a government bond and earn 5 or 6%. And the only thing that they were really giving up was the opportunity foregone. So they could have earned more money taking more risk somewhere else, but they could still earn a decent return. The financial crisis changed all of that. Of course, interest rates are, are, now, uh, are now nailed to the floor, as are bond yields. And so we don't think it's possible anymore to really find a safe haven protective asset that has a positive income. And what you now need to do, uh, in our opinion, is if you want protection uh, in your portfolio, you have to pay for it. And how that draws you really to the options market and to, to credit default swaps. And and that's what we do. So that the payoff profile to the instruments that we have in the portfolio are a little bit like uh, an insurance policy. So a small outlay 
which you pay consistently as you do with your house insurance and then if the event comes to pass then you, you your payback can be many multiples of, of the original investment. Now you try not to lose money in any 12 month period but last year Ruffer Investment Company made a negative return. Why was this? Yeah. So the the NAV return was negative five and a half, uh, which was the worst year in Ruffer's history, which is, goes back to ninety five, as I said. So that was that was very disappointing. It prompted quite a lot of soul searching and uh, re underwriting of the portfolio internally. But actually, for Ruffer Investment Company, it was it was a little bit worse than that because the share started the year on a premium to NEV and they ended the year on a discount to NEV. So the share price return was more like minus ten that's what people see on their valuations so that that was that was unfortunate now to talk about how the nav return uh, resulted in, in in the poor performance i really would put it down to two things the first is the performance of the protection assets and the second is the equities so to talk about the protection assets first what we are really focused on doing is protecting investors from very bad outcomes from wealth-destroying bear markets like we had in 2000 or like we had in 2008. What we can't really do um, is is protect against run-of-the-mill drawdowns. And I don't mean to belittle what happened in Q4 2018 because it felt very serious at the time, but it, it, it wasn't a bear market. The fall, the fall in the stock market was, was, less, than, was less than 20%. So we're, we're really looking to protect against... Um, Against issues that are that are greater than that. Now, on the equity side, um, oh, also sorry, I should actually also say that the protections they really started to work in December, um, and I think had the had the market deteriorated further at that point, then almost certainly we would have started to make more money and our performance would have would have improved. But just in that interregnum period, um, the market had not deteriorated to the extent that our out the money protections would would gain in value. Now, on the equity side, uh, we we had a deliberate positioning uh, because we had only 35% in equities for, for most of the year, which is one of the lowest equity weightings we've had. You have to go back to 2008 to find the last time we had equities as low as that. But we, we wanted to have them in highly cyclical value um, high beta equities because we, we almost thought of that bucket as the what if we're wrong. We were very well protected on the downside because of all the protective assets we have but in the chance that we're wrong and the cycle extends or the market keeps going, we need equities to work hard for us. So we had those spicier equities and the reality was in Q4 when the market sold off, those equities sold off hard and we had suspected that the low valuations that they started on and the low level of expectations that were embedded in them would have given them some downside cushion and that was wrong. We would have been better had we been in safer equities. Okay, in view of the fact you know, that your equity allocation detracted 3.7% from the trust net asset value second half 2018 have you reduced your allocation to it further or perhaps changed the equity allocation we haven't changed it a great deal what what we did do was we we were buying uh, through december and january and that that's the benefit of having a multi-asset portfolio is that we have all these protective assets which were doing quite well at the time and at the time the market was at its most acute in december so we were at the margin, selling a little bit of the protection assets and taking advantage of the 
distress in equities to to um, maintain our equity weighting as the market fell. But in terms of the overall shape, it's not really changed changed a great deal. We, we still we still think that there is uh, merit to that idea that if the cycle extends and the market keeps going, it will have to broaden to include cyclical and value stocks. And I'm sure I wouldn't be the first person to come on to your podcast and say that the the valuation dispersion is very wide in markets at the moment and growth has hugely outperformed value for a long time now. And uh, as I say, if there is to be a further leg to the equity market, I think it has to include some of the value stocks. Okay, I mean, on that note, which of your equity holdings particularly detracted from returns? And in terms of what you added to in recent months, was it those particular ones or was it different ones? Yeah, so, so the, the bruises came from Japanese banks, from cyclical stocks and from some of our oil-related names. In terms of what we what we added to, I would probably highlight General Motors. That, that um, ticks quite a few boxes for us, so... It's deeply unloved because it's an, an auto maker. It's a value stock. It's got cyclicality to it. And it's, it's just a, a very interesting bottom-up stock idea. So everyone hates the auto sector because of the threat of autonomous vehicles and uh, electrification. But GM is not the business that people think it is. It's a far safer company today than it was in 2008. It doesn't have any of the balance sheet issues that it did back then. But it's also carved itself out a niche in sports utility vehicles and trucks. So that's where most of its profit comes from today. And we think it's on a very low valuation of about five times next year's free cash flow. But within that, there is... uh, there, there are two hidden assets in the business that have been costing them money and not yet generating profits. One of them is called Cruise, which is one of the world's leading autonomous vehicle companies. And another one's called Maven, which is one of the world's leading ride-sharing businesses. So actually, uh, I'm not going to make the case that GM is a tech business, but it has two very attractive new tech assets, which uh, which could be worth a lot of money to it. And in the meantime, the core business is, is kind of humming on all cylinders. Now, what made a, a positive contributions to your returns in the second half of last year? Yeah, we can come on to talk about talk about it in more detail because I think it's very important. But the Ruffer Liquid Multi Strategies Fund was it's a bit of a mouthful, mm. um, but that, that's our, our uh, investments uh, against credit markets, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. On the equity side, I, I would probably highlight Ocado, Disney, and Apple. So uh, Apple's now sold. We, we sold Apple quite well before before the end of the before the market turned over in the fourth quarter but disney is the largest stock position in the portfolio today so that's probably worth worth talking about a little bit i th- i think it's just a fabulous business so my shorthand for how to describe disney is a tax on parenthood it's almost <laughs> impossible to have children and not mm. have disney mm. claw some portion yeah. of your income via, via <laughs> the movies or the disney channel or holidays to the parks or uh, going to the cinema or the consumer products it's it's endless the way that they have tapped the imagination of of children and what we've seen over the last decade is that one of the most valuable types of assets in the world is content one of the best examples of content is the English Premier League, the football. But what's happened there, as the value of the content has exploded and, and reached a global audience, is that all of the benefit has accrued to the players. And the players earn astronomical sums of money. Well, Disney's content is the Disney characters. It's Star Wars. It's 
Pixar, it's Marvel. But the the wonderful thing about them is that Mickey Mouse or Buzz Lightyear never ask for a pay rise. <laughs> so all of the benefit goes to the shareholders. And then on top of that, this is a very conservatively uh, managed business. So they've been investing hugely in new parks over the last few years. There's a Star Wars park, an Avatar park. There's one in Shanghai. These have all been expensed, in effect, and will start to contribute positively in the next in the next couple of years. And in addition to that, lastly, they've got Disney+, Plus, which is uh, going to be their kind of streaming service. And when you add the Disney catalogue to the... Uh, 21st Century Fox catalogue that they're going to acquire, you've got this huge database of, or, or catalogue of um, of programmes and content, and it looks an awful lot like Netflix. It, it will be a direct competitor to Netflix, and yet today, Netflix and Disney are almost the same size, but Disney has all of this other stuff as well. So we think that, that the, the upside on Disney looks looks pretty good from here. Okay. Now, as as you mentioned, you had been trading on a premium to net house value for for a few years, but turn of the year you fell to a discount. Is that purely because of like performance last year, or of any other factors yeah. at play there? Uh, we think about that a lot. Mm. <laughs> that is. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing I would I would emphasise to to listeners is that it's a bargain. So mm. today you get NAV of two hundred and nineteen p, and I think the share price is about two hundred and eleven. So it's pretty rare in the history of Ruffer Investment Company, which goes back to 2004, that the discount has been that wide for any period of time. And the one time it was, the board took decisive action in 2006 to uh, let shareholders out at NAV if they wanted to leave. And that, that solved the problem. Now, definitely performance will be some part of the, the derating. Uh, and I think the, that, is, that is fair to an extent. Uh, that people that people question whether we're we're worth it anymore, uh, or whether we've still still got the ability to do as we as we say we would like to do. But it also reflects the broader sentiment towards the absolute return sector or the capital preservation sector. There are a lot of different funds out there with similar investment objectives to ours, using different methods that I mentioned earlier, uh, and. It's, there's not that many of them that have covered themselves in glory over the last over the last couple of years. And the last point I would maybe suggest is that investors have been conditioned over the last, you could say over the last twenty years, but particularly over the last uh, the last ten, that uh, there is a central bank put. So central bankers will do things to support markets and look after investors' downside. And therefore, maybe investors have been conditioned, like Pavlov's dogs, that the central bankers are going to come in and uh, underwrite markets when there's a bit of a sell-off. So what do I need an absolute return fund for? I may as well just be in the S&P. And I think that's a grave mistake because let's not forget that central bankers tried to support markets all the way down in 2000 to 2002. And of course, they tried to support markets all the way down in 2008 too. So... Uh, I think that would be a mistake, but I can see that there is some of that uh, mentality in, in the market. Do you expect to make a positive turn in 2019? <laughs> um, I, my facetious answer would be, that's a little bit like asking a, a barber if you need a haircut. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But 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 I think it's it, it's a it's a valid one because we, we talk a lot about... Mm. Um, we, we, we do tend to present a gloomy outlook. Mm. outlook. And I, I think that if, if we stylistically talk about a bad market outcome, I think we're very well set for, for uh, lots of reasons. We have a lot of protective assets in the portfolio. If markets 
are strong and the economy keeps going, I think then there is a question of can can rougher perform? Mm. And so just to put some numbers on it, I, I, I think if equities were up 10% and our high beta cyclical portfolio should probably be up 15 then or 15 to 20 maybe because there are some some high beta the high beta stuff in there uh, then that would add say 8% mm-hmm. attribution to the portfolio and our protective assets could cost 2 yeah. So, so, so I, I think we would lag equity markets, in, of, of if course, rise, yeah. if they were yeah. good. Mm. Um, but I, I would be disappointed if we didn't participate because of the the low valuations and all the embedded optionality in in the equity book. Now you mentioned you pretty gloomy, so which well, I suppose is what you're supposed to do if you're in a wealth <laughs> preservation fund. But um, which downside risks are you, let's say, gloomiest or most concerned about at the moment? Yeah, I think I think there's probably. Probably two I would highlight. The, f- the first is is the the broad set of asset valuations. So um, if you look at global stock markets, particularly the US, they are pretty expensive relative to history. Whether you look at cyclically adjusted PEs, uh, price to books, uh, you know, Tobin's Q, market cap to GDP, lots of different predictive valuation metrics suggest that, that equities are expensive. We know that, that bond markets are pretty expensive because interest rates are very low. And also you have you have things like high-end real estate, which also look pretty bubbly. So th- there's this phrase floating around, the, the everything bubble. Um, maybe that's a little bit extreme, but in general, asset prices are high because interest rates are low. And that means, I think, prospective returns don't look very good. So that's the first thing I would... I would uh, I would worry about. The second is far more niche, and that's to do with credit markets. Uh, and this is the this is the rougher liquid multi strategies fund, which is the biggest the biggest investment in the fund. And that is uh, a fund where we have exposure to credit default swaps. Credit default swaps are investments that will rise in value as corporate borrowing costs increase. Um, now, the root of our concerns around this issue is that we've had 10 years of quantitative easing, abundant liquidity, easy money, and uh, the low interest rates that that have uh, come out the other side of that have forced investors to reach for yield. So savers have been forced to buy investment-grade bonds and high-yield bonds to earn the income that they would have previously got in cash and in sovereign bonds. On the other side, corporates have embraced this ability to borrow money at low interest rates and have borrowed en masse and it's reached the extent today where corporate debt to GDP is at an all-time high. And yet, despite that, the cost to borrow or the, or the investment-grade spread that companies are paying is very near all-time lows. And that's that's never really happened before. There's normally a pretty strong correlation between the amount of debt a company has and it having to pay more to borrow, which, which sort of makes sense. Today, there's a complete disconnect there. And we think that the tide of liquidity that has fueled that boom has started to turn, both at a macro level and a micro level. And when it does turn, it will reveal some pretty nasty things underneath the surface. And this is not um, 
it's not a particularly liquid market. It's a very big market, the corporate corporate bond mm-hmm. market, investment grade and high yield globally. I think is about nine ten trillion dollars. So it's very big, but it's not very liquid. And the the secondary market is almost non-existent in bits. And so if and when these investments are, um, someone attempts to sell them, it's not obvious who the who the buyer will be. And so we think that that poses a risk that prices could could gap down and it could be very disruptive. And because of the size of the market. It has the potential to spill over into other asset classes. So we think in that scenario, where people go to try and sell their illiquid bond, which, by the way, is also inside a daily liquidity vehicle in a mutual fund or an ETF, and it's mm-hmm. a separate can of worms. But when people go to try and sell the bond, and they can't, um, we think that they will probably turn around and sell the next best thing, and that's the equity market. So that's how we see this niche problem in credit markets spilling over to have uh, broader broader impacts. And the, the rougher liquid multi-strategies fund essentially benefits when corporate borrowing costs or high yield spreads uh, widen. And okay. that's exactly what would happen in that scenario. Okay, so um, how are you protecting against the problems you envisage in the bond market and let's say the fallout beyond it? Well, well, so, so th- that that illiquid multi strategies fund will benefit from from exactly that scenario. Uh, the other way that you can protect yourself, which we have done, is is to try and avoid equities with significant financial leverage. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about us having high beta cyclical equities, they tend to have uh, operational leverage in their in their business model, but not not debt, because that that's the epicenter of the problem. We think. Now you said you very concerned about bonds, but you've actually got a high allocation to index-linked bonds. Why? So bonds are quite a broad church, and so I, I would split them out into, uh, for the purposes of this question, three different parts. So you've got corporate bonds, which are the uh, loans to companies that we are betting against via the Rougher Liquid Strategies Fund. You've got conventional government bonds, uh, and we don't hold any of them in the portfolio today. We, had, we did hold a lot pre-financial crisis, and they worked well for us then, but today we have none. And the reason that we have none is that interest rates are very low, so the bond yields available are spectacularly low um, almost everywhere. Only, only really in the US is there a moderately attractive, on a relative basis, uh, bond yield. And the financial historian Jim Grant he uh, he calls bonds the risk, or he says that bonds are often called the risk-free return. But today they're actually uh, return-free risk, and I think there is some merit to that. Um, that they they offer not very much upside, but quite a lot of downside. There are index-linked bonds, which is what we own. So we have forty percent of the portfolio in index-linked bonds, and these are where the principal and the coupon are both linked to inflation. And what really drives the pricing of um, index-linked bonds is the difference between interest rates and inflation. And our big-picture macro view is that there's too much debt in the world, and one of the solutions to this debt will be a period of financial repression, which is quite a fancy phrase, but what it means is interest rates held low and below the rate of inflation. Uh, And we think we've, we've actually had that in the UK for the last decade, if you think today interest rates are 
0.75 and inflation is at 3, you've got a negative real interest rate of 2.25. And we see more of this, much more in the future, and the situation could possibly become more acute. And that environment is very negative for most asset classes, but actually is perfect for index-linked bonds. So that's why we hold such, such a large weighting to them. But they also have the benefit of, because they are a government bond, they are seen as relatively low risk. So if and when the market sells off, they do tend to um, act at the very least as ballast. And so even though we've not had a huge amount of inflation over the last uh, last decade, the bond-like element to those have, have generated large returns. Okay, thank you, Duncan. A really interesting insight into how you mitigate downside and rougher investment company. That brings us to the end of this interview, but see the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on wealth preservation funds and ways to mitigate downside. Thank you for listening.